I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, and we're going to approach this message beginning in this narrative of Jesus' nativity, and then I'm going to address quite a bit of other passages as we go through uh, this message this morning. Luke chapter 2 on this Christmas day is very fitting as we consider uh, the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now hear the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1 through verse 21. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea and to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid." And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which should be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child... His name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Our gracious Father, as we contemplate this record of which you have inspired Luke to inscribe into Holy Scripture, we pray that you would have our attention to be focused on the greatness and the glory of our God in the face of Jesus Christ. We pray that we would bow our knee of our heart this day to our Lord King of Heaven, who came in a lowly estate, became man, and lived his entire life in order to atone for our sins, died upon the cross, rose the third day, ascended on high, sent the Spirit, 
and is reigning now at the right hand of God the Father. How thankful we are to be united together in Him in this mystical way. And we pray that you would strengthen our faith in giving us an understanding of the enormity and the magnitude of your grace and love and mercy and of this great glory that you have revealed to us in saving our souls and exalting us to sit even this day in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. And we pray that you'd warm our heart, assure us in our faith, comfort us, and pray that you would strengthen us, that we would live out the remainder of these days with strong fortitude and a committed, uh, persuaded heart of all who you are and what you have accomplished and what you will accomplish according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As we read of Luke's account here of the details of the nativity more than any of the other details offered in the other gospels, we see a narrative of a very human baby being born. Born in a world, in a very humble setting in the stable, um, born of poor parents, which we then understand even by the way that the, uh, the sacrifice in the coming days was offered and the days of her purification were fulfilled, and even born in a very difficult world at a difficult time. And the problem in seeing such humanness of Jesus Christ is, of course, that we know that he is fully God. He did not empty himself of deity, nor any of his attributes. He did not give up his godness. He is fully God. And therein brings the tension when we see this baby born of the Virgin Mary, who was also fully man. This is the creator of the universe, eternal, self-existent, immortal, one God, who is now born in a stable. And this is the, the tension that, that the, the ages have wrestled with. And while we do not understand the mystery that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, simultaneously, we must embrace and believe it. I've entitled this morning's message, 12 Reasons Why God Became Man, taking off, of course, of the popular Christmas song of the 12 days of Christmas. So kids, if you want to put this to a tune... And then you have at least one for each day remaining. I believe there are probably more than 12, but I thought a 12-point message is at least uh, catching up a bit with uh, Brother Phil Kaiser, even though I still haven't surpassed his 30-point outline yet. Uh, and so I did give you 2 o'clock off, so just settle back in and, and we will we'll see 12 reasons here. But there's a reason why we need to know this. It's very important for us to, to believe this. It's not enough to know that Jesus was born, but it is important to understand who Jesus is and why he came to earth. And to, according to God's plan, it could be no other way for, than for him to become fully human. This is the mystery of godliness, according to 1 Timothy 3.16. The early church wrestled through this and 
came to a united expression of the doctrine of Christ. It was a most difficult work in the context in which they ministered in the early church to, to articulate what God has revealed about himself to us, this trinity, this one God in three persons. And yet the difficult work of ironing that out actually revolved and focused on the person of Jesus Christ, who he is. His singularity in person, his duality in natures, fully God, fully man, one with the Father and the Spirit. It took a couple of hundred years to iron all of this out, and that issue faced many challenges that had to be answered in the face of the truth of the matter of who this Jesus is. Along the way, our church fathers had to wade through and confront errors and correct things such as Gnosticism, or dualism, or doceticism, or monarchianism, or Sabellianism, or Arianism, or Apollinarianism, or Nestorianism, or Eutychianism, just to give you a few examples of what they had to wade through in order to get articulated the person of Jesus Christ in his two natures in one person, fit for the creeds of which we now stand. We read that, I was, I was appreciative of Keith pointing out the, the author of that uh, ancient hymn by St. Ambrose, the Archbishop of Milan in the 4th century, who was one who really fought very strongly for Arianism. And Arius himself was quite a musician and would write these little jingles that would support his errant theology of the person of Christ. Ambrose is considered the father of modern hymnody, even back to the 4th century, because the way that he fought against the doctrine of Arianism with the person of Jesus Christ is by writing hymns. You might remember this was a time in which the church was largely... Um, uh, they couldn't read. You don't have the copies of the Bible like we do today. And even if they could read, they didn't have access to flesh all of these things out as we have access to. And one of the ways in which St. Ambrose taught the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of Christ and his personhood was by teaching his congregation in Milan these hymns. And as you go back and read these hymns, you can see the support of bolstering these things. And so we know him as the father of hymnody. Getting the doctrine of Christ right is an issue over which people lost their lives. At the very issue over which good old St. Nicholas in the Council of Nicaea walked around the room and slapped Arius in the face, much to the shocking surprise of all of the bishops present. That's your good old St. Nick. Or so the legend or story goes. And finally, after several generations of battling for the doctrinal truth of the person of Jesus Christ, a formal agreement was reached on the wording of the biblical doctrinal truth of the person of Christ. It was reduced in writing in the historic Orthodox creed of Christendom in which we, 2000, almost 2,000 years later, along with the church historic, have repeated and affirmed. 
Yet these threats for denying Christ's humanity have never ceased. Gnostics and Gnosticism and its various themes will deny or depreciate the physical aspects of godliness. There is a dualism that is embraced even today in the world where the physical world is somehow seen as evil and the spirit is good. And there's many variations of that theme in various degrees. The antithesis between spiritual and physical that some people make shoots right at the heart of our Christian faith and should never be a dichotomy or an antithesis embraced. We should never put an antithesis or a contrast between spiritual and physical. If Christ was not raised physically from the dead, then our hope and our faith is in vain. Today, among many evangelicals, there is a depreciation of this physical earth, the physical realm that God has made, and what God is doing here, and what His plan is for this place. You can hear it in comments about going to heaven. In the way that they view going to heaven, they put it at the final and the highest state of man, which is simply not biblical. To depart from this life and to be present with the Lord, absent from this body, is certainly a higher state than where we are enjoying life right now. But it is not the final or the highest state. And the Apostle Paul would end the third chapter of Philippians re-emphasizing that the thing that he is pressing forward is not merely to be absent from the body and present with the Lord, but the resurrected state in which he then is glorified in the resurrected body and heaven comes down to earth and paradise restored with the presence of God dwelling here on earth and not somewhere afar off. See, that's a variation on a Gnostic theme that evangelicalism has picked up on. There is a Gnosticism that oftentimes even relegates, and I've heard it said many times, a matter of obedience of the heart is what's important, not merely an outward expression. And so I've heard people say, yes, it is where the heart must obey, and they give no, no, no credence at all to any physical, external application. And if you don't apply the truth to the physical man, and you just keep it in your heart, that is a form of Gnosticism. We have to be careful with the subtleties of these old heresies that keep cropping back up. This dualism that somehow diminishes this physical world and embraces the invisible world. In addition, there are other doctrinal teachings that diminish the importance of the future resurrection, the bodily return of Christ, and God's final plan for this earth as heaven comes down and the two are reconciled and united together. A doctrinal position known as full or hyper-preterism is an example of this, and we will address this as we get more into the Olivet Discourse in coming weeks. But know that this position, which exists among many or some, 
Reformed Presbyterian folks, very similar to us, is errant in this aspect of the physical and important nature of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. All of these tendencies reduce the importance of Jesus' incarnation, of Him becoming man. And if you but reduce one point, you've reduced them all. It is essential that we interpret Jesus' birth in light of His death and His physical bodily resurrection. And only then does His birth have its proper context to understand it, embrace it, and love it and celebrate it. And this morning, after that long introduction, I want to give you 12 reasons from the Scriptures why God became flesh in order to bolster the biblical importance of Christ in His hypostatic union, that is, His two natures being in union together in His one person and His ongoing perpetual continuance now in human body. Why all this trouble for God to become man? What's the purpose of it all? Number one, to show the magnitude of God's love. Why would God desire to become even lower than the angels and even in a very lowly estate of humanity, born of a stable to poor parents? Love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God wanted us to know not only how deeply He loved us, He wanted to demonstrate it on a scale and a magnitude the likes of which we cannot comprehend. And that is exactly how Ephesians 3.19 puts it. It surpasses our comprehension to take it in. A love of such magnitude, of such profundity that we have never or could ever even imagine. As Romans 5 says, but God demonstrated, He commended His love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. A love for one's enemy to the extent that God the Creator lowered Himself to become man to die for those who were at enmity with Him. And the great blessing of this particular application is that we know by this that God loves us. He loves you more than you love yourself. He loves you more than you love anything or anybody else. And to show this love, God condescended to our lowly estate and He became human and died for us. The second reason that God became flesh was to atone for our sins. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, it says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. To deal with the brokenness of this world, God cannot dismiss sin. He cannot merely overlook it. And in fact, He is quite angry 
towards sin and toward the sinner. He is angry with sinners. But he loves sinners. And he has to get that satisfied of the problem that is causing his anger. He's righteously angry. He's righteously anger, angry for our utter, inexcusable, blasphemous rebellion against him. And for God to be righteous, he must also be just. And if God is going to accept us, he's going to do it on his terms, his holiness. His holiness cannot be defiled. His justice must be satisfied. His anger must be appeased. And that word propitiation is that which Christ has done. He has appeased the wrath of God and atoned for our sins. He has satisfied God's justice. And that is this vicarious, propitiatory sacrifice where He has come in our place, died for the sins, died the death that we deserved, and yet given us His righteousness that we do not. Christ became man in order to atone for our sins. Number three, to become our mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. In order for us to be accepted by God, we need a mediator who stands in the gap between heaven and earth, between a holy God and a sinful fallen people. This is what Job longed for when he was lamenting, and he says in Job 9.33, nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on both of us. See, Job had the idea. Here. He had the right idea what a mediator is. And for our mediator to be standing in heaven with God, who has a standing with God, to be able to lay his hand on God and one hand on man himself, this mediator must be God and man to be qualified in order to do so. For our mediator to be able to lay one hand on us to represent humanity before God, he must be fully human. And hence, for the one mediator between God and man to be qualified, he must be both God and man simultaneously while in one person a single mediator. Christ had to become man in order to be qualified as a mediator between God and man. Number four, Christ became man to be our high priest. A priest, by definition, is an official that is chosen out from among God's people to represent them before God. And to be God's chosen representative, to be chosen out from among God's people to represent God's people before God, Christ had to become human. He had to be numbered in their lot. He had to be chosen out from among them in order to represent them before God. And in doing so, he became identified with our weakness and infirmities. And he knew our need. We see this as he enters his public ministry. 
at the baptism of John. He comes to John to be baptized. And John refused it at first. No, I must be baptized of you. And you've come to be, no. And remember, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. But this is the entry of Jesus into his public ministry where he was then anointed as priest. Being sinless, he had no need to repent. He had no need personally to be baptized in a baptism of repentance. But he says to John, he says, permit it so for now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And Jesus had to identify with our sinful lot in order to fulfill righteousness, yet he himself was without sin. So he identifies with us as people, with our lot, in our sinfulness and our need for repentance. He identifies with that so then he can be our high priest. That's where Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace in our time of need. Because he identified with our weaknesses, he he knows the weakness and the infirmity of this flesh because he, he identifies with it. He knows the weakness of humanity. He knows what we go through. And, and because he remains sinless, his interceding at the Father's right hand is absolutely efficacious. And God will give the grace and the mercy to us as we come to our great high priest. Christ had to become human to be our high priest. Number five, to be the last Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 says, And so it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Due to the nature of God's covenant relationship, Adam was the covenant head of all of the human race so that when he fell We all fell in him, for we were in Adam, the scripture says. Romans 5.12 puts it this way, Therefore, just as one man's sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned, even in that one man when he fell. For we are all in Adam. And because Adam was also head over all of earthly creation, he took, he took the whole creation with him, the whole thing, the whole nine yards. And so Christ came to be a new covenant head over a new human race and a new creation. And 1 Corinthians 15 says, For since by one man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so even in Christ all shall be made alive. Christ had to be human in order to be a new Adam over a new race and a new creation here. Number six, to fulfill all righteousness. Galatians 4.4, we actually quote a portion of that every Lord's Day in the, uh, the liturgy of the Lord's Supper. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. 
The word righteousness is this idea of being conforming to a standard. That's the very general generic phrase or meaning of righteousness. But God's standard to which we are to be conformed to is the law of God, which is a perfect expression of His nature. But no man has kept the law perfectly. And that is why Jesus had to come. He was born under the law so he could walk in obedience to the law. That's why he says in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle will by no means pass from this law till all is fulfilled. Theologians would call this particular aspect of Christ's work his active obedience. Christ was born under the law in order to fulfill the law, to fulfill righteousness that God requires in perfect obedience. That which Adam failed to do, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, would succeed. And in order to impute that righteousness that he then merits in working out this obedience unto faith, Jesus then became man as the new covenant head who is parallel to the old covenant head who failed in this endeavor. And that's why Romans 5.18 says, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, Many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many were made righteous. Christ had to become man in order to fulfill the law's requirement for us. Number seven, Christ became man to bring heaven to earth. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about this temple theology. Was it last week? I don't remember when it was. But this temple theology, which goes throughout all of Scripture, which is a picture of the new or the, the, the original creation and the, the garden paradise and garden in Eden. And, and then all of a sudden, it, when the fall comes, we get this picture again of the tabernacle and, then the, and the, later the temple. And then Christ comes and he shows the reality of this heaven and earth. In Him. In Him. Where heaven and earth join together. That's why He is the figure of the Jacob's ladder coming from the earth, going up to heaven, and angels ascending and descending upon Him. This is the figure of where heaven and earth are connected, and it is connected through the mediator and through Christ Himself, who is the new temple. And that is why in John 1.14 it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt tabernacled is the very word there, and tabernacled among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What God did with His people, He looks at them in the wilderness, and He pitches His tent among His people, who were dwelling in tents at the time, identifying with their lot, coming down and living right in the midst of them through the glory cloud. And as we see, this is what Jesus is in reality. That was but a picture. 
And as we see this God becoming man, bringing heaven to earth and connecting this through this temple principle, there is an earthiness to his incarnation. Adam was made out of the earth in the context and relation to the earth. That gave him his marching orders and it made him a particular way in which God designed him. And there's an earthiness, even though there remains a heavenliness in Christ. Colossians 1.20 says, And by him to reconcile all things to himself, whether they be things on earth and things in heaven, having made peace by the blood of his cross. He's bringing peace between the two. Christ became man to bring heaven to earth and to reconcile heaven to earth. Number eight, to restore God's image in humanity, Christ became man. Hebrews 1.3 says, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus, the perfect man, the perfect image of God. As Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation, the preeminent one of creation. The work of Christ is restoring now the image of God in us, which was marred in the fall, but now as He's redeeming humanity Now man can have the image of God restored in him so that he can reflect the glory of God throughout all of this earth so that as the heavens or as the waters do cover the sea, so the glory of God can go throughout all of the earth through his image bearing. Colossians 3.10, we are to put off the old man by putting on the new which is renewed in the image of him who created him. And that's what he's doing. He came to this earth as a man to restore in man God's image. Number nine, to restore creation. As already mentioned, Adam was created as the covenant head of the entire human race. And by extension of God's appointment over all of creation to take dominion over it, Adam's headship extended to all of creation. So when Adam fell, the entire creation fell with it. That's why thorns and thistles, that's why the sweat of the brow, that's why it works against us. But all of creation fell. But Romans 8.22, it says, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together unto now. In other words, the creation is feeling the fall under the headship of man. But likewise, to restore creation, Jesus had to become the new Adam, the new covenant head, the one who once would have all of the dominion restored unto humanity on this earth again. And that's why Romans 8.21 says the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. The two go together. Christ became man to bring justice here as the head over all of creation, setting everything wrong right. Everything wrong here, he's setting right. 
That's why in the words of the psalmist, even from what we sang in Psalm 148, we're calling creation to praise. That's why in the psalm, it calls the, and even Psalm 98, when it speaks about God will come to judge. This is a great praise psalm because when God judges the world, he brings his justice. He's going to set everything wrong here right. And that is the reason why the rivers will clap their hands and the hills will be joyful and the sea will roar. That's why the lamb and lion and wolf and all of creation will be harmonized once again as we read in Isaiah. And since early creation is under the headship of man, Christ became man to restore all of the fallenness of this earth that the first Adam's disobedience brought. So Christ became man to restore fallen creation to a new state of goodness. Number 10, Christ became man to defeat all of our enemies and to establish his kingdom here on earth. Here on earth. To defeat all of our enemies, there were two enemies, really at the root of it all, the internal enemy and yet at the external enemy. The internal enemy is our own self. We are our own worst enemy. This sin and this flesh, which has this enmity against God in our mind and by wicked works, is this internal enemy that Christ came to defeat. But we have an external enemy as well, this enemy that we call death and this enemy that we call the devil. And Christ came to destroy all of these enemies and to give us life and to defeat the serpent and to give us triumph here in the kingdom that he came to build. In Hebrews 2.14 it says, Inasmuch then as we Inasmuch then as children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. When Adam rebelled against God and sin and yielding to the serpent's temptation, he forfeited his authority over all of this earthly creation over to the devil. And that's why the devil has been called the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world. When Christ became man, this is when he went into his death and his resurrection. This is the parable in which Christ spoke about when the strong man comes in and then he binds the strong man and he then plunders all of the goods of his house. Christ became man. He is the prophesied seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And that would take place on this planet here. This great spiritual battle. Christ became man to restore humanity to his divine design in order to take dominion over this earth once again. And to do this, he had to take back from the devil what was rightly due to man's in the first place. So Christ became man to establish the kingdom of God here on this earth by defeating all of the enemies here, 
that stood against man's purpose in fulfilling God's design for him as image bearer. Number 11, Christ came to this earth as a man to guarantee our bodily resurrection. He is the first fruits of our resurrection. 1 Corinthians 5.20 says, But now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, also by man came resurrection of the dead. Contrasting again Adam with Christ. For as in Adam all die, even so Christ all shall be made alive, each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits after those who are Christ at his coming. Christ had to become man in order to go through death and be raised to a glorified state in order to be the first fruits of our resurrection. This principle of first fruits was taught in an object lesson in the Old Testament as we were to then glean the very first of our crop and then we would bring it before the Lord and we would give it up to the Lord. And these first fruits were offered at the three annual feasts or at least the two annual feasts. But in the feast that happened around Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, that was when the barley harvest, which was the first of the crops, would come into harvest. And it would just begin to bud. And they were required to take then the first part of that crop, leave the crops for a whole week, travel to Jerusalem, trusting that God was going to protect the crops from the enemies and bring forth the harvest that remained. They would come and they would bring their first fruits. They would offer it up to God. And as they offered the first fruits to God, they had to trust that God was going to provide the rest of the harvest. And if they acted faithfully, God promised he would do so. And built upon that object lesson, Jesus is revealing to us that his resurrection is the certainty and the guarantee that the rest of the harvest will come. And so he guarantees our bodily, physical, glorified resurrection because we can see that it has already happened to him. His bodily, physical resurrection is inseparable from our own. And as the first fruits, we have great confidence in this. So Christ became man in order to guarantee our future resurrection. And number 12... Christ became man to glorify God in this great incomprehensible act of grace, mercy, and love. In Hebrews 5, 5 and 6, it says, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The way that the gospel writer of John, the gospel of John says this, he says, he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true. Jesus did not come to glorify himself, but to glorify God the Father and to show the attributes of Almighty God, to show forth his love, the abundance of his grace, all of his mercy, which are new every morning and everlasting for eternity. 
the goodness of God, this incomprehensible goodness of God was on display as Jesus becomes man, as God becomes lower than the angels, becomes into this earth, into this fallen state that would be at enmity against him. And he came to die for us who deserved it not and to give us life when we deserve death. He came ultimately to glorify his Father. This is echoing back to Ezekiel's reason when he said, it is not because of you that God is saving you. It is for his name's sake that he saves you. It is for his glory. And to think first and foremost, the reason that we have such a great benefit, the likes of which we cannot ever imagine, nor will eternity ever exhaust, is because God is glorified in doing so. And we are so joyful because God chooses to glorify his name in such a way. Christ came, became man to glorify his Father in carrying out his redemptive plan Fully man, fully God, executing the plan in obedience. And he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. And it was through the joy that was set before him, he endured the shameful death of the cross. There you have 12 reasons why God became flesh. To show his great love, to atone for our sins, to be our mediator, to be our high priest, to be our new and last Adam, to fulfill all righteousness in our behalf, to bring heaven to earth, to restore God's image in us, and to restore creation in which we live, to defeat our enemies and establish his kingdom here on earth, to guarantee our bodily and future resurrection and glory, and to glorify God. There's 12 reasons, at least one for the next 12 days. So today, as you contemplate the birth of Christ, understand why God became man. Interpret it all in the light of his resurrection. This doctrine is important for you to understand. It is important enough and worth you dying for, as many of your fathers have. As you think about God becoming flesh, give him thanks for his great love, for the grace that surpasses all of our sins, for his mercies which are new and everlasting, for all of his goodness and for this free gift for which you did not have to, to earn or work for. He gave it freely to give you peace on earth. And since God is such a lavish God, you can know that he greatly loves you and provides for your very best in every situation that his good providence leads you. Trusting. He is God. Our gracious Father, we are thankful for this tremendous gift which we have contemplated a little bit this morning on, which our fathers have labored and toiled to articulate the biblical, scriptural, doctrinal truth of Christ and the mystery of godliness in such a profound way. And we thank you for their labors. And we thank you for this truth, the truth that sets us free. 
A truth where we do not have to strive within ourselves to earn your favor, but to rest in Christ and to know that you are favorable to us because of his faithfulness. How thankful we are for saving us from our sins and being our great high priest and for all these benefits that we have in the body of Christ. As we come around this table, this sacrament of which is an emblem and even a means of grace to unite us together in this bodily form with the bodily resurrected glorified Christ. We, even this is a mystery to us. We pray that you would strengthen us in the very truths that are symbolized at this table. We may embrace them in faith and may we who are just live by faith to the remaining remainder of our days being faithful as Christ was faithful to do his Father's will. So we pray that your kingdom would come, your will would be done here on earth in our lives as it is in heaven. May your name be hallowed and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.